The Oath Keepers leaders, Stuart Rhodes and Kelly Meggs, were found guilty in D.C. Federal Court of Seditious Conspiracy. A huge win for the Department of Justice and for all Americans and horrible news for Donald Trump. And former Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows was compelled to testify before the Fulton County Criminal Special Grand Jury after his emergency application with the South Carolina Supreme Court was denied. And I love the language that the South Carolina Supreme Court used. They called Meadows' motion, quote, manifestly without merit. So poetic. And Former top Trump advisor Stephen Miller, who is the opposite of poetic but is getting his poetic justice, testified before the criminal grand jury in Washington, D.C., the federal grand jury that is part of the Department of Justice's investigation into Donald Trump's crimes relating to the January 6th insurrection and his criminal election interference. This was the first witness to go before the criminal grand jury since special counsel Jack Smith was appointed and a big one or a little one, but a big one for justice. And then Donald Trump, Karen Friedman, Agnifilo, he keeps attacking the special counsel, Jack Smith. He's attacking Jack Smith's wife. He's attacking Jack Smith's late mother-in-law. He's attacking Jack Smith's sister-in-law. Apparently, Trump thinks that this is a good idea, committing more uh, crimes. But I got to hear it from your perspective as a top prosecutor and now the co-host of Legal AF Midweek Edition. I got to have your take. This is Legal AF, the most consequential legal news of the week, Midweek Edition. I'm filling in for Michael Popak. And where Karen Friedman, Agnifilo, and I last left off, we did a video, an emergency live video hit. After Jack Smith was appointed special counsel, Karen Friedman Agnifilo had worked with Jack Smith at the Manhattan DA's office uh, for some time. And then Karen Friedman Agnifilo uh, rose up the ranks, became the number two deputy in the entire office in the Manhattan District Attorney's office. And Jack Smith went on to his very successful career as a federal prosecutor and as a war crimes prosecutor. But Karen, seems like the public is warming up to Jack Smith now, huh? almost as if you were right or something. Well, you know, sometimes when you know somebody and you know them well and you know their work product, it's it's not hard to predict how people are going to come around. You know, it's interesting. I've been following, as everybody else has, what Trump is saying about Smith. And it's it's he's attacking, as you said, his family. He's attacking his wife. He's attacked is attacking his sister-in-law, his late mother-in-law. But he's, he can't really say anything about Jack himself other than he, he makes these big proclamations that he's totally compromised, he's a political hitman, but he doesn't back it up with anything. He doesn't say because this happened or because he once did this or because I have evidence of that. And so it's, it was very clear to me that the reason he is going after Smith's family is because he has nothing on Smith because there is nothing on Smith. There is absolutely nothing you're going to find about him that will show that he's in any way political, that he's compromised, or that he's a, a political hitman, or whatever, whatever it is he's been saying about him. 
there is nothing that you will find about Jack Smith that will be able to back up these ridiculous claims. I mean, at one point, I think he even went after the judge who officiated at Jack's wedding, Judge Garifus, who's a Southern District judge. I mean, if that's where you're grasping to go after Judge Garifus, who's one of the most respected jurists in New York, I mean, if not, you know, if larger than, than New York in the Southern Dif District, he handles some of the most high profile cases. Nobody would ever call Judge Garifus political or that he does anything remotely political, that he doesn't follow the law and follow the facts. Um, but somehow, because he officiated at Jack Smith's wedding, you know, that's all he could find. Anyway, so I just thought it was interesting that uh, in all the things that he's doing, he, he really, Trump hasn't found anything on Smith and he won't because Jack Smith has got, has, he's independent. And I, you know, I have no idea what his politics are because any good prosecutor keeps politics out of the courtroom and out of the office and out of your life as a prosecutor. It's not, when you're a prosecutor, there is no politics. You, you follow the facts wherever they lead and you uh, bring justice without fear or favor. That's it. And so that's what Jack has done his whole life. And you're going to find, because, because he has prosecuted, um, elected officials and he was in the political corruption unit and he's, he's been, uh, those are the types of cases he's been doing over the years, both uh, federally and internationally, you're going to find that he's prosecuted equally. He's investigated and prosecuted equally people of all parties. It really doesn't matter because that's just not how prosecutors work. And that's not how they do their job. And so Trump's not going to find anything. He's going to keep trying to grasp at straws and go after and who's next, you know, their dog, if they have one. I mean, really, who's next? Who are they going to say uh, is next? Because if you're going after somebody's sister-in-law, you know, that that's really and their and their dead mother-in-law, uh, someone who's going to put pressure on him. I, I think that's just um, shows how desperate he is to try to find something to say about this truly stellar prosecutor. And Karen, so from the perspective, though, as a former prosecutor, where Donald Trump's kind of harassment of the special counsel, Jack Smith, and of Jack Smith's family, does it cross the line at some point to not just being evidence that's going to be used in a future prosecution of Donald Trump, but does it also become kind of independent potential bases for bringing criminal charges against Donald Trump for obstruction? I mean, it's not normal behavior to threaten a prosecutor or the judge who are presiding over your cases. And whereas Donald Trump may have gotten away with it before when he was the president because he had other lawless people in powerful positions protecting him. That's the opposite of law and order. So what's your perspective there? My perspective on that question is if he hasn't crossed the line, he's certainly walked right up to the line. When it comes to attacking Jack Smith and saying things about him, I, I think you know it's clear he's trying to intimidate him as a prosecutor and he's trying to interfere with a criminal investigation uh, through this intimidation. But that I think is, is a little bit, I think some would say fair game and uh, you have to be able to have discourse um, and he has free speech right to comment on the prosecutor. 
I think where he's cr clearly crossed a line is by bringing his family into this. He's put pictures of his wife up there. He's put pictures of his sister-in-law up there. And he's really, I mean, some would argue that Jack Smith is a public figure or a limited purpose public figure. Certainly he is now by taking on this role. And, but his family, that is not fair game. His family has nothing to do, unlike Donald Trump's family, his kids who worked in the White House. And so they were and are political figures and they put themselves in that position. There is no such thing with, with um, Jack Smith, certainly his sister-in-law or his or his sister, or his wife, I should say, or his um, deceased mother-in-law. And so that's clearly trying to not only intimidate them, but I think also get others to intimidate them. He knows that his base, he knows what they do. He knows that they will start uh, doing doing the things that they do, whether it's reach out to them, whether it's say vitriolic, terrible things about them. If, if people start actually threatening or doing things to his family, uh, I think he's going to, I think he's in big trouble for that because that's just outrageous. And I do think that actually crosses the line. And I mean, from your perspective, I mean, being a high profile prosecutor, I mean, I'd love for you to share your perspective too about you know, people would love to know, like, was that something when you were in the Manhattan DA's office and you would have these high profile cases that you'd be worried about? And, you know, even like in mobster prosecutions, like they usually still have the sense not to go after the prosecutor and the prosecutor's family. Um, you know, maybe they engage in other witness intimidation, but like, what's your own perspective from your personal experience? Yeah. So, you know, my husband was a federal prosecutor who prosecuted uh, gangs for many, many, many years. And um, as a result, he did get uh, some death threats. And, you know, at, some, at one point there was a Molotov cocktail that was found on the lawn of his parents' house. And we had to have police officers at our young, at the, who were then young uh, children's school. It, you know, it was, it's scary. It really, really impacts your life. And, and, but that's coming from criminals, you know, only criminals threaten somebody's family. You don't threaten somebody's family. A, a, you know, a normal person, a normal civilized person does not threaten a prosecutor's family or a prosecutor. And, you know, I look, I had it as well. Um, but what I would get is much more pressure. I'd get more, I would call it bullying than threats, you know, kind of the, you know, people would say negative things about me or say negative things about what I did or about decisions that I made or that sort of thing. But no one ever would talk about my family ever. Um, you know, so it's just, it's just a different ball game, you know, to talk about somebody's, to talk about somebody's family. But, you know, look, we all know that's Donald Trump's playbook, you know, whether it's Hunter Biden, you know, or whatever it is, like he, he, he's, you know, he goes after people. He's a, he's the biggest bully there is. And he goes after people and everyone's fair game. There's no one off limits for him. And he stoops so low and will absolutely go after, go after someone's family. But like I said, you know, it's one thing to go after someone's wife or child. When you're going to someone's wife's sister or wife's mother, he is desperate. He is, he is grasping for straws. He's trying to find anything on Jack Smith. Like I said, you'd go after someone's, the person who officiated their wedding. I mean, that's the most you have on him. That just shows you how 
frankly, squeaky clean Jack Smith is because Trump has nothing and he's just being a bully. And we'll see. We'll see where it goes and we'll see if they do anything about it. You know, I think they, they will say we have bigger fish to fry, um, you know, than to prosecute him for somehow, you know, interfering with this. I think hopefully they'll just put their head down. You know, Jack Smith and his team will put his head down and turn off that noise and do their job. And it looks like he's doing his job and like he's doing his job quickly. I mean, you know, as you were talking, you know, saying before, he's already got people, you know, Stephen Miller testifying in a, in a federal grand jury. You know, that's at least reported on CNN. So, you know, it looks like Jack Smith is just you know, tuning out this ridiculous noise and uh, and doing his job. And hopefully we'll we'll see something soon. You know, and you got to give Merrick Garland credit as well in the entire Department of Justice for building this brick by brick. And you and I have discussed it before here on the midweek edition, and we've discussed it also on the uh, weekend edition as well about how the Department of Justice went about these prosecutions and investigations. So first, kind of just starting with the low level trespassers and, you know, the kind of bizarre mega extremists and the kind of just strange cult members who were there. Like the, the one example I always give is like the shaman, but just a bunch of these other kind of brainwashed people who entered, but didn't like steal or do anything violent, but did a bad thing by breaking into the Capitol building. So those people were disposed of first and uh, they either were prosecuted or, or plea agreements were entered into there. Then the next level were the violent trespassers um, who got very serious sentences. And then the next level after that were these terrorist groups like the Oath Keepers, um, the Proud Boys, um, and and others like that. And they were tried for the, um, the, the one of the most serious charges that exist in federal law, seditious conspiracy. It's treason, basically overthrowing the United States government. Now, I almost recall a little bit even more than a year ago, a lot of the talking points too by um, right-wing talk media and, and other right-wing politicians is, is like, well, you're all calling this sedition, but there no one's even being charged with sedition or treason. And then a lot of people back then were hating on Merrick Garland too and saying, well, you're not even charging anyone with sedition. But in order to get to those terrorist groups and charge them right with seditious conspiracy, you had to build all these other layers, develop the evidence, then methodically bring the seditious conspiracy charge. And that is what they did there. And at the same time, parallel track, what we'll talk about a little later too, um, is the grand jury uh, proceedings whereby top Trump officials have been testifying about the highest rung of who led this conspiracy, right? I mean, all roads eventually lead to Donald Trump. And what this seditious conspiracy trial against the Oath Keepers shows us, and it's a was a seven-week trial, uh, testimony was taken uh, on, uh, began around October 3rd. Jury deliberations took about three days. Um, this first batch of Oath Keeper terrorists, there was five of them. There was Stuart Rhodes, Kelly Meggs, Jessica Watkins, Kenneth Harrelson, and Thomas Caldwell. 
Um, Rhodes and Megs were some of the top leaders. Rhodes literally led it. Megs ran the Florida branch. But one of the interesting things is that like these individuals were not actually in the Capitol building themselves, right? And so what this prosecution showed is that you didn't literally have to be in the Capitol building and storm it to be guilty of sedition conspiracy, seditious conspiracy, which is what made the prosecution actually a very, very difficult one, why it took so long, why the evidence had to be developed the way it did. But the fact that you had Stuart Rhodes and Kelly Meggs convicted of seditious conspiracy, although you had Harrelson, Watkins, and Caldwell were ultimately found not guilty of seditious conspiracy, um, but on the conspiracy to obstruct, Rhodes was found not guilty. Meggs and Watkins were found guilty. Harrison and Caldwell were found not guilty. But then on the obstruction of official proceedings count, everyone was found guilty. And so the overall takeaway here, though, is that the obstruction count is still a 20-year prison sentence, as is the seditious conspiracy. So everybody was found guilty for a felony obstruction that carries with it a serious sentence. But the successful prosecution of seditious conspiracy here for the leaders, Rhodes and Megs, and the very nuanced analysis that the jury did here, I think also spells very bad news for Donald Trump. Because ultimately, if someone like Rhodes and Megs could be found guilty um, based on their ability to or their their uh, attempts at doing what was called the QRF, a quick reaction force where they had all these weapons stored at a hotel in Arlington, Virginia, they were ready to go, but they were waiting on Trump's order to invoke the Insurrection Act. And they believed they were working in concert with Trump. In fact, they were calling Trump. And so what do you make of this guilty verdict, its impact, and how do you think it could impact the investigation of Trump? So this is a mixed verdict. It's a success. You know, they, it was all five people were convicted, but not, as you said, they weren't convicted of every charge. And the jury was out for three days. And because they had this where they some were guilty on some and not others, and it took a few days, it shows how thoughtful they were. I think that's excellent for any appellate record because sometimes on appeal, uh, I know Donald Trump's gonna argue that this was political, that it was in Washington, because this happened in Washington, he couldn't possibly get a fair jury, and that a jury was gonna, going to just go along with the prosecutors no matter what because they were there when it happened. I think what this type of verdict is going to show the appellate courts and what, what the appellate judges will see is that, no, that's not true. This jury was absolutely able to uh, look at the evidence and look at it fairly and make nuanced uh, decisions that weren't just knee jerk because they are in Washington or whatever, you know, whatever the, uh, the things that Trump's going to say. So I thought that it showed that they were thoughtful and really deliberate um, the one thing that I was a little concerned about is, um, is that there was a couple of charges that Rhodes was acquitted of, um, sort of the conspiracy to the, the planning ahead part of the, of it, you know, the, that this was some grand plan in advance and he was acquitted of those. I just hope that no appellate judge or appellate court will find that that was repugnant with his other um, 
with his other convictions, because it is a little weird to say he was not guilty of conspiring to do the thing that he was then found guilty of doing. So we'll see if, if I, it's just a tiny little point that may or may not be made, but, but I do think that um, this is significant. I do think also that they should um, sentence him as soon as possible. Uh, and he should, he should start serving his time because if, God forbid Donald Trump wins when he uh, runs again or another Republican, he can just pardon all of these guys. So although Stuart Rhodes is facing, I, I read somewhere on the three counts that he was convicted of, he's facing up to 60 years. If he gets pardoned, you know, then he might not do any time or much time. And so that was my only concern about this is that it's so important because there've been almost 900 prosecutions that, you know, the Justice Department has done a lot of work on this, and it could all be for naught if a Republican wins in 2024 and pardons everybody. It also reminds, you know, everyone should be reminded how important Fonnie Willis's case is in Georgia. I know most people want the DOJ to be the ones to bring that case and not Fonnie Willis, but I just want to remind everyone that a Republican president can't pardon a state conviction. So it's important that these state cases also remain active and um, supported. And they are, they are moving forward. But, but so, you know, I, I was sort of, just to answer your question, um, I think, I think your question being what impact does this have on the larger investigation? I think, you know, at one point, I think, um, Ben, you had said in one of your other, um, one of your other podcasts, uh, you had talked about, does this, would Rhodes ever cooperate with the Department of Justice and try to get less than the, you know, couple of um, decades worth of, of time that he's facing? And, you know, I thought a lot about that. And I think the Department of Justice, you know, he might, he might come forward and say, okay, look, I'll, I'll cooperate now because I want less time. But I don't know how receptive the Department of Justice would be to that because he testified in this trial and he testified under oath. And so either what he said there is the truth, and then that doesn't help the Department of Justice in their case, their ultimate case against Trump, or he lied under oath and committed perjury. And so he's kind of a useless witness either way. Um, I think what is more likely is that, you know, there's still another uh, another um, another case coming down the pike. Um, that's not the Oath Keepers. It's the Proud Boys. And the Enrique, Enrique Tario, who's the head of uh, the Proud Boys, his, they're coming up next to trial. And he's he's kind of just as bad as, as Stuart Rhodes. And he, I think, might look at this conviction and say, wow, you know, maybe we need to think about cooperating because now we can see that the government can prove seditious conspiracy, that they can bring these charges. You know, it, in the beginning, Merrick Garland even was worried about this as a charge. And so it took a while for this charge to uh, to be brought by Merrick Garland because it hasn't been brought in so long and it's a big deal charge. It's a, one of the most serious charges this country has. Case was brought and it was upheld by a judge and that was great. But now that it's been found by a jury to have 
met the standard of seditious conspiracy, I think that these other cases, these other defendants are going to be thinking long and hard about whether they go to trial or whether they cooperate. That, that's my feeling. I think that's an incredible point. And recall Enrique Tario was actually hanging out with the hanging out at the White House uh, after the 2020 election. And he was posting photos of himself on social media and said, I got a surprise invite or like a surprise Christmas invite. Look where I am. And literally you have this terrorist leader inside the White House and taking selfies of himself. I remember just that image sent chills down my spine. And so you're right. Enrique Tario um, is probably thinking, I'm probably going to go to jail for the rest of my life. Like they, they, these people are serious and he may hold important knowledge that could be very useful in a prosecution of Donald Trump. And so I think that Enrique Tarrio's lawyers are probably reaching out to the Justice Department right away there. Now, that Proud Boy seditious conspiracy trial, one thing to mention too, Karen, because I think this is, is helpful too for people to think about it, like the Department of Justice now was able to learn to what worked with the jury, what didn't work with the jury. And so they get smarter with each of the cases that they try. And so by the time the Proud Boys go to trial, all this institutional knowledge um, and what maybe they could have improved on, they're all talking about that. So they're going to have a very tight case against the Proud Boys when uh, when that trial starts. And that trial was supposed to start in uh, mid to late uh, December. I saw one of the court orders uh, basically reflect that it looks like that the really testimony is going to begin um, probably after the new year. Um, but look, justice moves in the right direction here. Um, have a lot to talk about here on the midweek edition of Legal AF. We got to talk about Mark Meadows being compelled to testify before the Fulton County criminal special grand jury. And we got to talk about Stephen Miller's testimony before the federal grand jury in Washington, D.C. Before doing that, I got to tell everybody about one of our sponsors, Lomi. I love my Lomi because I had all of this trash all over um, my house. And um, I kind of felt guilty that I wasn't doing my part in helping out the environment with all this garbage. But like to learn about composting and how to do it and then to turn my garbage into like dirt and help the environment is something that's been a revelation to me when I got my Lomi. I love advertising for Lomi because this product is really cool, Karen. And I know you you just call me up and you say, I'm using my Lomi right now. Like we like we so geek out about using our Lomi. So just tell me about your experience using Lomi. So I have to be honest, I was skeptical of Lomi when they first, <laughs> I didn't know anything about this before uh, before they sponsored us. And I thought, but wait, I thought food garbage was the good kind of garbage that goes into the landfills because it decomposes. And it's not like throwing styrofoam or other things that, that don't. And so I was thinking, I was confused. And so I did some research and I had no idea that food garbage is the number one contributor of 
methane gas release from landfills, which is one of the things that creates uh, the the greenhouse um, gases and the and the greenhouse effect, and you know the environment and the global warming and and all of those things. And so I just didn't know that, and I have to say I was so. I learned so much from it. And so I turned on the Lomi and now I'm a little bit addicted to it and obsessed with it. Now you should have seen me at Thanksgiving. I would not let anyone throw a single food scrap out in the trash. And we had a lot of people and a lot of food. And so it also feels like you're not wasting. And so, cause I hate wasting things. So I dumped all of the food scraps into the Lomi. We ran the Lomi and it does come out like dirt. It's kind of a miracle and <laughs> it's amazing. So my my mother was so impressed with the Lomi that she ordered a Lomi because of it. So I actually, I feel really good about it. I think it's great. And the dirt I added to my garden and it's, it's just a good thing. So I highly, highly recommend this. It is a little bit of an investment, but it's something that, you know, you can get a discount with the legal AF, um, you know, with the legal AF promo code, but it's something I, I'm really, really enjoying my Lomi. So I love this sponsor. And Dan, your mom used the promo code legal AF. And so if you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just make cleanup after dinner that much easier, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com slash legal AF. Then you spell it L-O-M-I.com slash Legal AF, L-E-G-A-L-A-F, and use the promo code Legal AF, L-E-G-A-L-A-F, and you will get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to Lomi.com, L-O-M-I.com slash Legal AF, L-E-G-A-L-A-F, and use the promo code Legal AF at checkout. Food waste is gross. Lomi is your solution. With holidays just around the corner, Lomi will make the perfect gift for someone on your shopping list. So Karen Friedman Agnifilo, let's turn from Lomi to Stephen Miller. <laughs> um, let's talk about the import of his testimony before the grand jury in Washington, D.C. And so while these hundreds of prosecutions have been taking place uh, in federal court in Washington, D.C. of these insurrectionists that I talked about earlier, you also have these very active federal grand juries in Washington, D.C. There's two that I'm aware of. There may be another, but there's two that I'm aware of relating to Trump crimes. There's one about the January 6th insurrection and Trump's election interference. And then there's another one, a separate grand jury, also in Washington, D.C., about Trump's theft of the thousands of government records, including top secret, sensitive, compartmented records. And the Department of Justice has been very active in both of those grand juries. They've been issuing subpoenas um, to Trump's inner circle. Um, and for example, Stephen Miller's name came up back on Midas Touch reporting in September because there the Department of Justice subpoenaed Stephen Miller's phone and subpoenaed him for testimony. One of the interesting things about Stephen Miller's phone that I always found interesting was that he was still under his mom and dad's family plan, even when he was a White House uh, official. And so to subpoena his phone, they had to subpoena his mom. 
Um, I, I know. And, and, and look, not to say that that's problematic. It's just Stephen Miller in the White House that you'd have to subpoena his mom in that setting just kind of, you know, struck me as for all of Stephen Miller's bravado. It's like, come on, Stephen Miller, get your own phone plan at this at, at this point. Um, if you're going to try to run our government, you know, maybe run your own phone plan first. Um, but he finally testified before the grand jury. And I think one of the important things that this tells us, though, too, is this brick-by-brick brick strategy of the Department of Justice has been working to build their case and to stop Donald Trump from trying to assert these frivolous objections um, to testimony. And we know that Donald Trump's been trying to assert executive privilege to stop people from testifying about their communications with him in his inner circle. It's a frivolous objection for him to make, but nonetheless, something he's able to make that any other citizen of the United States cannot make that argument. So in that sense, when people go, if it, if it was any other person other than Donald Trump, they would be indicted right now. And to that, I always say, yes. But it's never been a situation where a former president of the United States has engaged in criminal conduct. We've never had that happen before. And because the United States Constitution, like the very founding document of our nation, ensconces in it all of these awesome powers in the executive branch, even a former president can wield these protections and you have to overrule them. You have to overcome them. And for these past 18 months, the Department of Justice has been doing just that. And they prevailed in the grand jury testimony of top Trump officials before. And they've gotten rulings from Judge Beryl Howell, um, who's the federal ju presiding judge in Washington, D.C., who oversees those grand juries, um, compelling people like former Vice President Pence's former chief of staff, Mark Short, and Greg Jacobs, the former general counsel, um, and the, uh, to Pence. And the Department of Justice is poised to get those same rulings with Trump's top lawyers, Pat Cipollone um, and Patrick Philbin, Cipollone's top deputy. But here, the fact that we've learned that Miller testified before the grand jury for a very long period of time, these grand juries are secret pre-indictment grand juries we don't get to know about. So we have to kind of use our sleuthing skills and try to figure out if there are leaks and try to read redacted portions of dockets to see what's taking place, unlike congressional committees, which happen in public. But here, um, we know that it took a long time. We know that it was it lasted several hours. Um, and we believe they asked him a lot of questions. So from that, we could at least deduce that Trump's attempt to assert executive privilege has weakened considerably. His ability to stop people from testifying has all but broken down. And the fact that Miller, who's his closest ally, you know, is testifying also to me says that Jack Smith's working hard right now and, and means business and hasn't missed a beat. What, what conclusions do you draw? Yeah, same. You know, Jack Smith, I, it, like I, I think we talked about, it wasn't going to take him any time to get up to speed. You know, these, these cases aren't rocket science and he has years and years, years of experience so he can make these decisions uh, very easily. And so he's moving forward. This is a very senior, high level person who testified in the grand jury. And so one could say they are making their way uh, 
higher and higher. One could also make the other argument, which is you want to get these high level people in first and hear what they have to say before you go to some other people. But either way, they're moving forward and it'll be interesting to see who's next. But no one can possibly say that Jack Smith has slowed this down because of Stephen Miller uh, going into the grand jury. And, you know, when you when you think about what uh, he talked about with the Jan 6 committee, I think that you could one could glean that as Trump's not only his close advisor, but his senior advisor, but also his speech writer, that at least one of the topics that they're going to have questioned him about was the conversations. He, you know, he wrote the speech um, on the ellipse, you know, on Jan 6. And so there was a lot of back and forth and a, and a long conversation uh, about whether or not to put the stuff in there about Pence. And, you know, at one point it wasn't in, and then Trump put more in than was in, and then he ad-libbed some of it. So I think what's going to come out is um, the mindset of Trump on January 6th and the mindset of kind of what they talked about on the speech. So we'll see if, 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 if we're right about that. But um, just to kind of talk a little bit more about what you were saying about the executive privilege argument, you know, what's the reason it's not been successful in these grand jury executive privilege arguments is because executive privilege is a privilege that can be pierced with if there's a compelling need. And judges have been upholding over and over again that a criminal prosecution and testifying in the grand jury meets that standard. And so that's why some individuals are being required to testify in the grand jury, like Lindsey Graham or you know others, because you can't really do the executive privilege thing when it comes to a criminal investigation uh, in this, in this, at least in this particular case. I, I think, you know, one question I have is, is when are they going to, you know, what about Pence? Um, and that'll be a really important witness. And I know they're in negotiations with him now about it potentially, but that's, that's the one I'd love to see in the grand jury. I agree with you. And we've seen some of that reporting out there and Pence doesn't have the same arguments that he's, I think, frivolously asserted, but nonetheless has been able to assert vis-a-vis -vis the January 6th committee to try to run out the clock there. And the argument he's made is that there's a separations of, separation of powers argument and that executive branch officials, even former executive branch officials, shouldn't have to go before a congressional committee like that, which is kind of totally made up and contrived. But nonetheless, the January 6th committee recognizes that to litigate those issues would ultimately take uh, many, many, many uh, months, if not years, to litigate it, and they just simply don't have the time here. Now, these executive privilege issues came up with the January 6th committee, and there you'll remember in Cipollone's testimony and Short's testimony and Jacob's, they were constrained in what they can say about the communications with Trump. And they kind of would hint it out by they would say basically, well, everybody who worked in the White House um, felt this way. And then you'd hear the question, well, what did Trump say? And then they would say, well, I, I mentioned everybody who was not running the White House, you know, what felt a certain way. So I can't answer beyond that. So they hinted out 
what Trump's view are. And look, it's not really like a secret. Donald Trump's a freaking maniac. Like he was rooting for the insurrection. He wanted Mike Pence killed. Like we know that. We just need it to be said. We need the evidence because, you know, I'll take you back to the decision reached by the jury in the Oath Keepers seditious conspiracy cases, right? I mean, these juries in general um, usually get it right, but not always. Um, they are, though, they could be very mercurial, and there are lots of technical areas of law. And if you present the case poorly or have defects in the case, it is easy for a defense lawyer to poke holes in it and show that there is doubt, that the prosecutors cannot prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the person is guilty. And so one of the things that Trump's defense lawyers in a prosecution would point out, and this is a jury instruction, which is if the veil of executive privilege was not pierced, one of the instructions says, well, you should look at the ability of a party to put forward evidence and why they didn't put forward the evidence. And so Trump's lawyers would say, well, they didn't show any of these witnesses. Don't you think that if Trump was really guilty, they would have got a witness to come in here and say that this is what Trump said? And the Department of Justice would not be able to say, ah, you know what, we just had to rush it. We really had to rush this thing because everybody on social media was like, what's Merrick Garland doing? Like, we had to rush it, and that's why we're here, Jerry. So that, that would not go well. And then all of the, um, what's the expression, Monday morning quarterbacking, um, although now there's football games on Monday, so I'm not sure that expression holds. But, you know, all of the kind of second guessing and hindsight is 2020. the same people who were hating on Merrick Garland for going slow would hate on him for saying, man, that was prosecutorial malpractice. How do you not pierce executive privilege? Merrick Garland doesn't know what he's doing. And so there's a difference between Merrick Garland and John Durham, right? Durham, who ran this politicized witch hunt in its truest sense and didn't have evidence, but just wanted to push forward a narrative. And Merrick Garland, who has secured almost with a perfect record convictions, 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 convictions from the insurrection and has continued to do this diligent work. Karen, I want to finally sum this all up by talking about Mark Meadows, though, too. Um, Trump's former chief of staff. He's really been running away. He's been running away from uh, subpoenas like like it's no one's business. And I thought he maybe had something like wired with the South Carolina Supreme Court when he filed this like emergency application after losing with the state court and he filed it directly with the Supreme Court and they granted his ability to like just to hear it. And then but but I was like, man, what do I, what don't I know about the South Carolina Supreme Court? Um, but they rejected his emergency application to block his testimony before the Fulton County special grand jury. I, I just thought Mark Meadows' arguments, though, were so disgusting, too, about what he tried to use to block it. I mean, he used the same technical arguments, which were loser arguments anyway. He claimed it wasn't a, a criminal proceeding, but was a civil proceeding. And he claimed that, like, the date was wrong in the subpoena and that it yeah, now should that- be... Yeah. But that argument fly, flew in Texas. For which right? person did it fly? No, the Texas is the Texas courts have been saying have been 
not it's basically saying to the Texas residents that this special purpose grand jury is not a it's it's not a thing, you know, because they don't have that in Texas. And so they're saying it's more like a civil thing. And so they don't have to the witnesses don't have to go down there. And, you know, because because for a state court to be able to summon an out of state witness, they have to go through the Uniform Act created by the states in 1931. It requires a certificate of material witness. There's a whole procedure you have to go through. And, you know, and and it's fascinating to me that, you know, thank God South Carolina is not buying this, but that's why Texas, you know, Texas is basically saying, no, this is a civil, this is civil. And so they've been putting up roadblocks, but other states are not buying this argument. And in fact, I love the language that uh, the South Carolina Supreme Court used here in their three paragraph written opinion, where he said, they said, we've reviewed the arguments raised by appellant and find them to be manifestly without merit. I mean, it's just, you know, I love, I love when judges say things like that, but anyways, I just, I'm sorry I interrupted you. No, but, no, no, you know. it was, it was, it, it's, it's a great point because you're right that every other state, whether it's New Gingrich trying to block it in Virginia, you know, here Mark Meadows trying to block it in South Carolina, um, a number of other states I can't recall, right? But, but mostly all of them were like, well, you know, we, we, we trust what Georgia is saying, you know, uh, you know, other than uh, Texas here. But the other thing that Mark Meadows tried to argue is that he had this privacy right, like he was. The fact that his name could appear in a report in the Georgia proceeding, because that's what the grand jury will do, is prepare a report and recommendations. He said that violated his privacy rights. And I just thought, how despicable that he's invoking privacy rights from having his name appear in a report when Republicans are taking away a woman's privacy right or taking away Americans privacy rights or taking away a woman's right to choose. And here you have a man who was involved in an insurrection to overthrow our democracy. And he's whining about his privacy rights for his name to be mentioned in a report. I just think it's like a, a, so pathetic. What do you think? By the way, he's a public figure. You know, he's not, it's not like Jack Smith's sister-in-law <laughs> talk. What about her privacy? You know what I mean? Like it's so hypocritical. You're absolutely right. You know, that he thinks he has a privacy right when he's a material witness, first of all, in this matter. He and he's hopefully going to soon be a criminal defendant in this matter since he has helped to overthrow our democracy on January 6th. So I just don't you know, this was in, in his official you know, he, he was working at the time and doing Trump's bidding when he's the one who set up the call on in January of 2021 with Brad Raffensperger to find the 11,780 votes. He set up the call. He also did a surprise visit in December of 2020 before that to Cobb County, Georgia, wanting to participate and view an election audit, but they wouldn't let him in. So it's not like he's, you know, it, this is to, to call it a privacy right when he is a material witness in this very investigation and a, hopefully a target as well. But, you know, this is that just doesn't make any sense. And it is hypocritical. And I agree with you. And it's preposterous. And now he's going to be forced to testify. And I, you know, I, I Bonnie Willis is, I think, doing her job and she's doing putting one foot in front of the other as a prosecutor and she's just bringing this case and being methodical and and we'll see you know uh, there may or may not be an indictment and there may or may not be an indictment before the report so she doesn't have to wait for the report in order 
in order to do that. So let's see, let's see what, what happens. But well, here's something that we know for sure, though. Uh, indictments are coming um, out of Fawny Willis's special grand jury, whether that's through a regular. I mean, it would have to come from a regular grand jury. Um, but we know that the special grand jury would provide the recommendations. But we know that she's going to um, being indicting some people. And so that will likely take place. Um, you know, within the next, what, Karen, next 60 to 90 days. I mean, the special grand jury runs its course through the end of the year. And then um, I would say, what, by early January, we'll probably hear about indictments. If she when waits they- until the end of the, you're right. So there's a special purpose grand jury that she formed that only can issue a report and it's being overseen by a judge. It can't issue indictments. So she would have to go into another indictment in or I'm sorry, another grand jury in order to bring any indictments. But who's to say she has to wait until the report is written? She might have enough evidence at this point to go into a regular grand jury. So we'll see, you know, there's no reason it has to go one and then the other, but she may choose to do it that way or she may not. But yeah, it it could be, I, I think your timing makes a lot of sense. Karen, I appreciated you sharing earlier in the episode as well, your firsthand stories to yourself and your husband. He's a former federal prosecutor. You're a former top state uh, prosecutor and those experiences. So I didn't know you were going to ask me about those things, those those times. (laughs) Well, you know, you got to you got to get those you got to get those reactions uh, spontaneously. But I appreciate you sharing that with our audience because it really situates that our justice system though is also a a a human system right there are people behind uh you know these cases there are people hard-working people behind these cases there are people fighting for justice uh who we want to highlight and there are people who are fighting against justice who we want to highlight for the opposite reasons we want to highlight them here and that's what we do each and every week here on legal AF. Shout out to our sponsor, Lomi. Also want to tell everyone to check out our Patreon website. Consider becoming a patron of the Midas Touch Network. We have exclusive content, exclusive legal breakdowns, exclusive breaking news breakdowns, exclusive behind the scenes footage, exclusive merch drops. There are some membership tiers there where you could become an honorary producer of the Midas Touch podcast. And there's so much more exclusive content you could only get at patreon.com slash Midas Touch, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Midas Touch. But most importantly, it helps grow this independent media platform. We are not funded by any outside investors at all. So no millionaire or billionaire investors who fund the both sides media. We 100% rely on you. So if you can, no worries if you can't, but if you can, wherever you are in the world, head to patreon.com slash Midas Touch now and become a member at one of the membership tiers. I know you will love it. I'm Ben Myself. Ellis, joined by Karen Friedman-Agnifilo. Karen, any final words for the legal AFers out there? Just great to see you and great to be here. And thanks everyone for, for listening. Until next time, this has been Legal AF. Shout out to the Midas Mighty. Midas Mighty.